0: Hello and welcome to the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. And I'm Albert Imperato, Where we help men communicate and build empathy. Season two of the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast is sponsored by our good friends at Standard & Strange, where the clothes and the people are anything but ordinary and the motto is own fewer better things. All right, Albert, I am seeing a scenery change for you for the first time in a very long time. I see you're uh, back in the city here, which has got to be a little exciting for you. Um, So it's no longer what's going on in upstate. It's, uh, you know, what's what's the hustle and bustle in the city now, man? How's it going? Well, I tell you, it's
1: uh, a year after uh, the craziness and, you know, a little year and a little bit more. And uh, it is nice to see more people out, more smiles behind the mask. You can just feel them, even if you can't see them. So we've, we've turned certain corners and we, we really need to be very, very grateful because Lord knows the last year was about as big a challenge as any of us could have possibly imagined and, and beyond. Um, yeah, I came for a haircut. I'm going to go get some old man tests. But we, we, I don't hope I don't want to put you on the spot, but you did have a little bit of a momentous week last week. So, very briefly, would you mind breaking the news to everybody?
0: Yes, yes. So, um, you know, last week uh, we, sp- or I guess two weeks ago, we spoke um, a comment about my uncle. So, I want to give an update on them. Um, my uncle on my dad's side, he was the one with the jaw surgery, went through great, came out on top. Like everything went well there. So, we're really happy about Yay, that.
1: Yay! Great news. Um, awesome.
0: Other uncle who is, uh, you know, he's, he's still battling cancer. Um, he is out of the hospital now. So that's, that's really great, you know, um, but you oh, know, uncles, yeah, a, a little in a tougher situation. Um, but I think the, uh, the icing on the cake here is that, uh, we got to welcome my son, Ethan Kodro into the Woo! world, um, one week ago. So yeah, uh, that was wild, exciting, a little early, a lot scary, um, but, Hey, we're here. We're doing it. Um, I got to carve out a couple hours today to <laughs> not do baby stuff. So that is really fun. So
1: well, you, you look remarkably awake. And I just <laughs> I was I'm so grateful because I've been really excited about our guest today. And something tells me if it were you know, some other people, you might have been like, dude, I had a kid, I have no sleep. Like, let's just not do this today. But you were kind of you were just as excited as I was about this so i mean we should really just jump right in congrats i just want to say a wholehearted very loud congratulations to you i'm thrilled for you and we'll hear more about ethan uh as as the show goes along and you know we'll figure out how long it'll be when you'll come back for the next show but let's (laughs) just enjoy the current show because a big theme of today's talk is about living and being in the moment Exactly. So uh,
0: we get to welcome uh, Dr. Judson Brewer to the show, and uh, I'm really excited um, to bring him on. Uh, let me go ahead and read his intro and we'll start it off. Dr. Judd Brewer is an internationally renowned addiction psychiatrist and neuroscientist. His TED talk, A Simple Way to Break a Bad Habit, has been viewed over 16 million times on YouTube. Dr. Judd is an associate professor at Brown University and an executive medical director at ShareCare. His new book is called, Unwinding Anxiety. New science shows how to break the cycles of worry and fear to heal your mind. Dr. Judd, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me. Oh my God, it's so great to have you on the show, Dr. Judd. Um, At the end of last year, we did a little round table with some regulars on the show to talk about um, the year and how it had challenged all of us. And just as I was preparing my notes, for the show. I read a Wall Street Journal uh, story on the book and I just loved every word that was in that story. It was, you know, anxiety is a habit. We could break this habit. We're gonna use kindness. We're gonna use curiosity. I was like hooked like a major trout. Like I was on that hook immediately. So uh, I did one of those Hail Mary uh, uh, emails to your folks and just was like, Dr. Judd, you really, we'd love to have you on the show, and I know you've been on like the New York Times Ezra Klein Show and some of the big podcasts. Uh, but it, I really appreciate that you did. this. Adam and I are super super excited. Yeah, I'm stoked to be here. So yeah, this is I'm really stoked. I just want to j- jump in right away and just tell you on a, on a personal uh, level uh, two things. Just first of all, I was so impressed that the very first page of the book, you just come out and say you know i had panic disorders and i was just completely blown away by that like you immediately put us with you in the same boat and i just thought that was absolutely brilliant it completely made me exhale um and i wanted i wanted to thank you uh, for doing that our show is about male vulnerability uh w- would you describe what you did and saying that right at the beginning uh, Vulnerability, and what's your take, if if you don't mind, a little brief intro to your own take on what what vulnerability is.
2: Yeah, well, I can't imagine writing about something that I that I don't know, that I haven't experienced, that I don't have any wisdom about, like in terms of like knowing it from my own experience. I would feel like a complete fake or a fraud. Like, how could I possibly, you know, speak or write about something that I I haven't actually experienced? So. I think, you know, I certainly writing about it. I wanted folks to know, like, hey, I'm not just some guy that's read about anxiety in a book and then did a bunch of research and then now I'm going to tell you what your anxiety is like. <laughs> you know. I- I'm that guy that didn't even know he had anxiety (laughs) until he had to learn what anxiety was and then realized, oh, that's not a bacterial infection that's making your guts um, do things that they shouldn't be doing. That's because you're anxious. (laughs) And I also found like being able to know it and study it and then research it and treat patients, you know, with it. That's a complete package in terms of really being able to look at it from all angles, both from the patient angle or the person angle where I can, you know, somebody says I have anxiety and I can say, oh, yeah, I think I'm understanding. I can understand what you're talking about because I've had, you know, all the flavors of it myself. But at the same time, you know, I love this and I love that you all really focus on vulnerability here because I wholeheartedly not just subscribe to the concept that vulnerability is strength, but I really feel it experientially, you know, it's like leading it's been amazing how many times that when I've led with vulnerability that has just proven how, how that's the only way to go, you know? And so there it's kind of like, well, how else would I start the book?
1: Adam mentioned, I believe off, um, off Mike, that he had uh, discovered a new year name from the Ten percent happier app, which is uh, an app actually that uh, Adam recommended to me, which I really enjoyed. But I'm going to just tell you, your book was like the missing piece. It was like t- it was like uh, a moment that was missing in my in my experience so far with meditation and mindfulness. And I didn't really understand why i was I was enjoying ten percent. Happier, I was meditating. I understood very much my what mindfulness was as a principle. But when you connected it to actual scientific research, it completely put a a light off in my brain to make me understand that I wasn't just doing meditation and mindfulness because, oh, in some quality of life way, isn't it better to be mindful? And it sounds like a little bit like a, a Hallmark card. The reality is, if you're not mindful, you can't actually change your habits. Yeah. And I was like, kapow. Okay. My head completely exploded. I read this book in two sittings. I absolutely loved it. I underlined everything in the book and I can't really, it was the missing piece. I, the last couple of days, I found myself meditating, doing things, thinking, Oh, it's just like little workouts um, I'm being mindful. I have to use this technique. I have to, here's why I have to be mindful. Uh-oh, that's the caveman brain. The caveman brain is making me panic. That's all this is, is the caveman brain. So I, I've already had an enormous, I'm not gonna say my entire life has changed forever, but I'm gonna just say it's been an incredible ride. So I just want to encourage everybody out there, like even if you're a terrible reader. You, if you just read the introduction, you would get something from it. Uh, That very short introduction, anxiety is in and of itself a harmful habit. Could you please begin telling us why it's a harmful habit?
2: Well, I don't know, we should probably just stop the podcast right now because anything I say is going to just decrease from what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I appreciate that. That's really that's really great to totally hear. Totally true. <laughs> and I also have to say I I kind of wrote this book because this is the book I wish I had 25 years ago when I started meditating, when I was, you know, I re- <laughs> Okay, ready for some vulnerability. I remember My first seven day meditation retreat, silent meditation retreat, day three, Judd Brewer, so he can get into medical school, but he can't pay attention to his breath. To the point where he's crying uncontrollably on the shoulder of random retreat manager uh, who ended up becoming my meditation teacher, but that's a different story. <laughs> so, like, I was like, I can get into medical school, but why can't I pay attention to my breath? What is wrong with me? Cry uncontrollably, cry uncontrollably, get dehydrated because I'm out of fluid. You know that type of <laughs> thing. So. So here, this is the book that I wish I had, and I wish I'd read. And here's the stuff that I wish I'd learned in medical school about anxiety, which I never learned. And I don't think it was because I felt it, well, maybe i certainly slept through some classes, but this was this was distinctly not on the curriculum. It was kind of buried in the 1980s. So maybe we could start there actually. So, So this whole thing emerges from, so anxiety has been around forever, right? But the, there's been such an emphasis on two things. One, willpower, which has been around, I you, I don't know, I'm not a historian, but there was a Parthenon in, in Greece from like 450 AD, where there's this horse and this rider, and the horse is the passions and the rider is willpower. And it's all about just taming the horse. Use your willpower. You know, if you wanna lose weight, just eat the salad instead of cake. Just, you know, they're, and there's actually a great, there's one of my favorite comedy skits is this five minute skit from Bob Newhart from the seventies. Okay. So, uh, and, and this woman walks into the therapist's office and Bob Newhart's the therapist. And she's like, you know, I have this fear. And he says, just stop it, you know, basically. And that's the whole skit. And she's like, I have this other thing. And he's like, just stop it. And she's like, I have this other thing. And she's like, just stop it. And she's like, I wash my hands a lot. And he's like, well, that's okay. And then, you know, <laughs> that type of thing. So we've had this mentality of willpower forever. You know, just stop it. Use your willpower, just stop worrying. You know, how many times have our parents told us just to relax, just stop being, you know, stop worrying all, all the time? So that's one thing that's been dominant forever. It's still the dominant paradigm. Drives me apeshit because it's it, it's scientifically, there's not a lot of evidence that willpower has very it's more myth than muscle. Okay. So there's one thing. Second thing I learned in medical school. It's called medical school because it has to do with medicine. So we learn a whole lot about what medicines to prescribe and what the side effects are and, you know, this and that. Okay. So 1980s, the Rolling Stones, they were singing Mother's Little Helper, right? She goes running to the shelter of Mother's Little Helper. That's how much benzos were being prescribed, like candy, right? (laughs) And it helps her on her way. It helps her through her busy day, all that stuff. Benzos, no longer first-line treatment, their problems, you know, addiction, overdose, all this stuff, right? So the 80s, this was also when the SSRIs were being developed, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, Prozac, Zoloft, um, you know, all those. Um, And those were heralded as like these safe effective alternatives well effective has an asterisk by it because if you look at that there's this term number needed to treat meaning how many people you need to give a treatment to before one person shows a significant reduction in symptoms that number needed to treat for gold standard treatment for anxiety is 5.2 which means i have to treat five patients before one person shows a significant benefit so here I'm getting anxious because one, I'm playing the medication lottery. I don't know who's gonna win, You know who's gonna actually benefit. And then I've got four people who are over sitting over here saying, I didn't get that winning ticket. What do I do? And I'm thinking, well, I prescribed the medication, You know, go figure it out. Oh, I'm the psychiatrist. I'm the one that's supposed to figure it out. So I'm getting anxious because I don't know how to help my own patients. So all of this is the background for what are we missing? And so my lab was actually studying, you know, we study habit change. We, you know, we've developed treatments for smoking where we get five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. We developed this app, an app for eating, where the study at UCSF got 40% reduction in craving related eating. You know, so somebody in our in our eat right, this app's called Eat Right Now, somebody in that using that app said, hey. I'm realizing that anxiety triggers me to stress. Can you develop a pro- program for anxiety? And I'm thinking I prescribe medications, but it put a bug in my ear to go back and look at the literature. And this is where I found this literature from the 1980s that suggested, Hey, anxiety could be driven like another habit. And that's when the bells went off in my head. And I was thinking, Oh, anxiety habit. Wow. I never made that connection before. And I know how to work with habits, that's my gig. So let's do this, let's bring this together. So we created this Unwinding Anxiety app, that's why I named the book after the app and we started studying it. And long story short, study with anxious physicians, right? Really hard group to work with, that's why we studied them. I know this because I am one of those people that's hard to work with. And we got a 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores in, I think it was in three months, 57% reduction. Well, that's pretty good. We did a randomized control trial in people with generalized anxiety disorder, 67% reduction. You know, if an app could do a mic drop, it would be doing that. Right. And there we could calculate that number needed to treat, which was okay. For medications, for those with very short attention spans, 5.2, you have to treat five patients, one person benefits. For this study, 1.6. So that's when I was like, oh, this this has legs. And then we could figure out the mechanism and and all this. And that's why I wrote the book, because I was like, everybody needs to know about this. This is stuff I didn't know. This is stuff I hadn't learned. And this was stuff that actually helped me, not only with my own, with other habits, but also with helping me learn to be more mindful, learn to meditate Better, you know, or or less, uh, in a in a problematic way. Like, let's just say I was getting in my own way. So long, long diatribe there, but hopefully that fills in some of the background.
1: No, a diatribe is something that has very little substance to it. is uh, just a little bit more anger and a little more uh, energy. But th- that was great. We're go- that gives us totally the back the background and the setup for what you did, um, which leads us to, to the first part of the book part zero, which is where you say you teach the psychology and uh, neuroscience of how anxiety gets set up. Just very, very briefly, if I can use layman's terms, it seems like basically the instinct that, you know, caveman prehistoric brain needed to learn quickly and adapt and avoid getting killed, getting eaten, so to speak, that became a very useful tool. We learned things really, really quickly and we could benefit from that knowledge very, very quickly. But then fast forward several millions of years, I'm not sure how far back this all happened, suddenly we're modern people living in a modern world, and we never shot, we never turned off that switch. And so mechanisms that help us get be very good at not getting eaten by a saber-toothed tiger are actually not that good for dealing with social media apps, for dealing with the kind of high stress lifestyle that we that we have. So is that am I too far off there? Or is that kind of the gist of the science? Bullseye, bullseye there. So, you know, just to just to highlight that with a
2: concrete point, you know, back in the day, whenever the day was when there were saber-tooth tigers chasing us, right? There was no such thing as as a deep fake saber-toothed tiger, right? <laughs> there was no such thing as like, oh, let's let's determine whether saber-tooth tigers are good for us or bad for us. Let's have a, you know, let's get political and you know, and just no, the science was that saber-to-tigers were bad because they ate us, right? And so we didn't have to sit around and um, disambiguate things, you know, uncer- basically uncertainty. It was pretty certain that if you didn't run, you would die, okay? In modern day, with the advent of things like social media, not only do we have a ton of information that is that is shot at us constantly if we choose to open up our social media channels, so to speak, But it is pretty ambiguous because everybody's got a point of view, an editorial or some some bone that they're trying to pick or some point they're trying to make about, you you know, this is right, this is wrong because I want it to be that way. And so we've got all this uncertainty and our brains hate uncertainty. So with uncertainty, our brains go, you know, are driven to seek information. It's kind of like our stomach rumbles when we're hungry. Our brain rumbles when we need to uh, get information, when, we, when we're uncertain. Yet, when you can't make things certain, that, our brains start to overheat. That's when the proverbial smoke comes out of our ears. and We get anxious because our brain just keeps spinning and saying, what if this? What if that? What if this? What if that? And We start to get anxious rather than actually getting information because we can't get that information in that moment.
1: Yeah, there's a, gr- a great line uh, from the book. Um, I'm going to just read it. With the same brain mechanisms as that unnamed cave person, we modern geniuses have gone from learning to survive to literally killing ourselves with these habits. Uh, I mean, social media. We saw the social media movie and everybody's uh, social dilemma. Everybody was deleting their apps and you know whatever. Uh, guess why what? it's not going to change anything? The bottom line, though, is you're you're not kidding. Really, you're saying it is killing us because it is. We we are all being wound up like tops. Um, uh, and, and it, it, and it has, it has real genuine consequences on our, on our life and our quality of, uh, uh, quality of our life and our health. Um, you, you made the analogy of the casino too, which I just love. And he, and he said, you talked about unexpected rewards, firing up our dopamine.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I love that line because the, it's the unexpected rewards. Cause you're, you're, you're hanging. You're you're you want the reward, but you're not sure when you're going to get it. So that's got to just be a heightened state of anxiety. That's got to be exactly what you don't want in life. Absolutely. And the dopamine is that thing that makes us feel kind of good, right? Well, it, just to be
2: clear, because it gets uh, misattributed in in modern day all the time. So if, if we can make one scientific correction, not for you all, but for everybody listening is dopamine actually uh, helps us remember things. Okay. So it helps us remember things. It fires when we get some unexpected reward, like, oh, I just won. There's that excited quality to that. And there's also that driven quality that says, go get something. When we're craving something, that's also dopamine firing. Notice how it's not actually that pleasant to be driven to go get something. So it's more of it. It's more associated with excitement, um, and that restless quality of experience, mm. but I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually call it a a happy molecule, as often people do.
1: Well, that's very helpful, actually.
0: That is amazing information there, and like the just to to start off the book like that gives us a lot of uh, you know great information and and a lot of science there, and then we turn to actually like mapping our brain in there, and that was uh, very uh, you know. <laughs> It was good. It was bad. It was ugly. Uh, (laughs) Did you do a lot of mapping? I did a lot of mapping and uh, I I found out um, quite a bit about myself and all those, you know, little tiny, like triggers that you get. um, And, you know, between being the, uh, you know, if you're avoidance or if you're like desiring it, I found out like there's, there's a lot of times in a day where I'm just like, Oh, I want to avoid that. Or I want more of that. Or, I want this, or I want that, and I was like, "Man, my my mind is really needy. Like, it is so needy." <laughs> so, um, in in uh, mapping the mind in Gear One, there's one line in there um, that I, I really liked. It'll kind of bring us back to uh, to our podcast. Here is um, you wrote in there: the best thing that you can be doing is empathizing, understanding, and connecting with your patients. Um, and later on, um, you said that like empathy helped, um, you know. Build a door for trust. Can you tell us a little bit about how the mind map and how that you know really helps you uh, connect um, with the people that you talk to?
2: It does. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And I this is one of the simplest tools that I've found to really help develop a a rapid and and you know real therapeutic relationship with patients. So basically, you know, and anybody can download. We have this free habit mapper, you know, mapmyhabit.com. Somebody can just download it and p- print out the PDF and start doing this. But I started doing mm-hmm. this with, with blank pieces of paper in my clinic with my patients, where somebody would come in, and you know, I'd start taking the history, and they would start talking about some bad habit, like you know, panic disorder or something. I would pull out a piece of paper and a pen. I would say, okay you know, let me make sure I've got this right. You know, basically habits are formed this way, trigger, behavior, results. So I write that down on a piece of paper and I would say, let me see if you've actually, you know, formed this habit around panic. You know, so I'm thinking of a patient who had panic disorder. I write about him in the book where he he would have these thoughts that would be the trigger. The behavior would be that he would avoid driving on the highway. And then the result was that he would avoid having panic attacks or avoid having those thoughts. So I just write it down on a piece of paper and be like, did I get that right? And one, so it's one, they have these aha moments that they just haven't been able to connect for themselves because certainly they just hadn't seen how the process works. So one, they have these aha moments, which is kind of like a a quick win for me. It's like, Oh, this guy knows something, you know? And it's basically, I'm just repeating back to them what they just told me in a certain order. But two, they say, "Oh, this guy actually listened to me. He's not some robot that's just trying to, you know, prescribe some medication to trying to make me take Mother's Little Helper or something like that." So those two pieces work really well together, and I would say the bonus is people love to learn how their minds work, and so they're like, "Wow, tell me more." I want, you know, I'm, I'm actually I'm into this. You're not some crazy psychiatrist like these, like they, I saw in the movies. Yeah. Or maybe I am, and they just don't know it. <laughs>
0: I mean, curiosity is a big part of the book there too, and and yeah, like I got curious as I started just kind of like really thinking about it, um, and then later on, uh, you wrote like paying such close attention to the results of our old habits is downright painful, um, so it is kind of like a double-edged sword because you get curious and you find out like yeah okay let's like let's really attack this like let's do this, um, and then you're like ooh I I do a lot of things I'm not too uh, too proud to say out loud about. <laughs> So when, when you get there, it's like, you know, you, you, you have like kind of like the, the curious burst of energy and then you kind of like, you know, turn the light on to all the darkness that that's inside. It's like, you kind of have that like tense moment, but you know, really the mindfulness helps, helps it, um, you know, follow through with the bigger, better offer. But whenever you kind of have the, that moment of like, I really don't like that I do this, um. What, what's the next part of the conversation that you have with these people?
2: So Adam, let me ask you, cause you were doing some habit mapping. <laughs> would, you, would you rather know what you know now, now, or in 10 years? Oh, absolutely now. Why? I mean, it's gonna just change the course.
0: And even though it's just a, a little bit, I mean, it's gonna be huge down the road.
2: Yeah, so it's kind of <laughs> like having a splinter under your skin and seeing it and pulling it out now as compared to having it under your skin where it, every time you touch it, it hurts, but you, it's still, it's calcified, you know, it's kind of scabbed over and you can't get at it. And then you got to get major surgery to get that sucker out. Much better, much better now, even though it hurts now, get that sucker out. Yes.
1: What I love about the book is that there, there are parts of it that are just fun and practical. You fill out your maps and your, you're, you know, your friends are on the phone and, and you're like, Let's do a little couple of maps of uh, stuff that's been triggering you and how it impacts your behavior and what's the result of that behavior. Um but there throughout the book you give other techniques, you explain why certain qualities like curiosity and kindness are uh are so important uh, uh just ways of looking at things and ideas that help you begin to slow down to slow down enough to begin to have some healthy distance from your own busy mind, in a way. Because the busy mind feels like it's really you, but the busy mind is often a lot coming from that caveman brain. It is its habitual brain. And, you know, it really struck me when I was... Uh, thinking about this, I, my, I always thought of my mom as a worrier. I would always complain to her that she worried too much. And my mom would say, don't tell me not to worry. I'm your mother. I always worry. And I got to the point where I just thought, oh, I must have inherited my mother's worry gene. There is no worry gene. There's a habit that creates anxiety. And it's based on something that you can understand, start making peace with, be curious about. Um, and, and that's what I love about the book is I found myself having an, a moment where, where it was very personal, very, um, uh, uplifting in a very pr- practical way, but at the same token, I love that I kept connecting it to the science. Cause I think, I think it's really, really important to understand that we are in a system but at the same time, we have a certain independence being an individual with the powers that we're given as, in, as human beings. Um, so you're, to, to go a little bit back to the the second part of the book you talk about the the uh, updating your brain's reward value that this is second gear so first gear is is the mind mapping you begin to just understand let's organize this the these things that you need to understand before we could change these habits then you talk about this second gear uh and and uh reward value could you explain just a little bit what what that really means yes i'd be happy to and this is This is why I love science.
2: (laughs) It's beautiful. (laughs) Yay, science. So, you know, basically we form habits based on how rewarding a behavior is. You know, that's it. That's basically it. If if something's rewarding, we're going to keep doing it. If it's not rewarding, we're going to stop doing it. And that second piece is just as important as the first piece. If it's rewarding, we're going to keep doing it. If it's not rewarding, we're going to stop doing it. Notice how no willpower is involved in that equation. No childhood, let me explore my childhood to figure out why. No, that is not in the equation. Um, Crystals, not in the equation. Rainbows, not in the equation. Um, You know, it's basically. Reward value is based on how rewarding it was in the past and an error term, okay? And this error term is called either a positive or a negative prediction error, which is just fancy science speak so we can sound smart. But it basically just means that if you don't have that error term, you're never going to change that habit. And what that error term is dependent upon is fully dependent on awareness. So positive prediction error means it's better than expected. Well, how would you know it's better than expected? It's because you paid attention. Negative prediction error means it's worse than expected. How would you know that? Because you paid attention, okay? So let's use a concrete example, chocolate cake. Let's say I've got a certain reward value set up in my brain on how rewarding chocolate cake is. I go to a new bakery that I've never been to before. I see chocolate cake, my brain says, that looks about as good as what I've had and then I eat it, I pay attention, and I'm like, ooh, that's pretty darn good. I'm coming back here again because I had a positive prediction error that says this is better chocolate cake than the usual. Or if I go in there and I eat it, and my brain's like, eh, yeah, it's not that great. I'm not coming back because there was a negative prediction error that said brain, this, this bakery is not worth it, right? It's not as good as expected. Notice positive and negative prediction error, base is completely based on awareness. If I don't pay attention, if I just eat it while I'm checking my social media, I'm not going to update the reward value because somebody be like, how is was that cake? And I'm like, I don't know, it was cake. Because I don't remember because I didn't pay attention because I didn't update that reward value. So that's how habits form. That's how habits change. It's not willpower. It's not crystals. It's not our childhood. It's well, our childhood, you know, we, we set up a habit at some point, but that's as far as childhood goes. So if that's the case, the only way to change a habit is by bringing awareness in, in that moment. And of course, you know, I don't know if this is true or not. So I test it, right? That's why my lab does research. And we found that it takes as few as 10 times of somebody paying attention. We used eating specifically as a, as a study. Um, We, we, we actually embedded this tool right into our eat right now app to study this. And we found that when people pay attention 10 to 15 times, they update their reward value. So this can be done not only with eating, but with worrying, with procrastination, with social media, with any habit. Okay, so that's the second step: is updating that reward value, helping our brain see if it's a if it's a habit that's not helpful. If we pay attention, we don't need willpower; we can simply our brain will take care of it for us. And then what that does is it opens up the space for us to bring in better you know better behaviors or i call them the bbos the bigger better offers
1: well i just want to give you a practical example of how this impacted me the other day after uh finishing off the book normally i go downstairs after i make a big saturday night dinner and i clean the dishes and usually i make the most healthy meal and i'm so proud of myself that i've eaten this delicious healthy meal that I've i've learned to make and then when my other half goes upstairs I say, I'll clean the dishes. And then what I do is say, hmm, I don't wanna really put that in the fridge. I'll just eat that. And then before I know it, like, oh, but cashews are health foods. I'll eat now a jar of cashews. Now, I I keep doing it because I'm thinking, as long as you eat healthy stuff, you could eat as much as you want. This is what my reward system was set up. My habit was, it's healthy, I'll just keep eating healthy stuff because I love to eat because I have such energy. And so all these things are based on my scientific view of myself, which is bullshit. I don't know anything about myself. So here I am eating late at night. I'm not saying I'm having shame moments over it, but every time and tomorrow I have my physical and the doctor's like, what is with the cholesterol? What's with the high blood sugar? But what's going on here? Well, it's because... When no one's watching, I'm finishing off all the food that's not getting put in, in the comp- in the composter. And the other night, I just did exactly, I was reading the book and I said, I know what's going on here. I'm not gonna eat all this stuff. Put the food that we finished in the fridge. Don't open up that unopened baguette. Don't open up the, the cabinet with the food. It wasn't just willpower, it was the curiosity. I was beginning to see... My habit in it up until that point, if someone was saying, "No, that's a habit," you're like, "It is not. I just I got great energy. I got a high metabolism." So anyway, the light went off. Now it's it's happened so many times. I I would have the 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 worry. Oh, I'm planning for my COVID test because I'm going to a wedding, and I got to do this and I got to do that. And there's 80 bits of information, and I got to go. I got to before I know it, I'm like, it's midnight. I'm not sleeping. I'm worried. And then I'm like, oh, caveman's trying to keep me up. The brain's <laughs> going away. This is bullshit. I'm, so thank you. You've helped me begin to unhinge. I'm not my mother. I'm not a, I don't want to be a worrier. I want to stop worrying. It's, uh, we can get there. It's, that's what I love about this book. This book is like, guess what? You can do this. Because the stuff that's going to help you do it is good for you. Curiosity. Kindness to yourself. Meditation awareness, mindfulness. I mean, this is fun. And I got to say, I eventually learned over time. And I did this before because I built a new habit without realizing it. I actually like a kale salad more than a hamburger for lunch. I prefer it. That's what I want. So anyway, <laughs> that that leads us to part three, but Adam's chuckling. So maybe he wants to jump in.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, no, it's it's fine. It's just uh, funny seeing you're so passionate about uh, all this... Uh, <laughs> All this dinner time stuff is great. Um, yeah, the the bigger, better offer is mindfulness. Is just, I mean, it is the the best offer that you can upgrade to. And the couple of techniques you put in there um, are really cool. Um, I love the hmm, the uh, just like let's get curious about this and and really see what's what's going on. Um, and then the rain technique is you know has been around for a little bit, and that's just amazing um, to get going. Um, specifically in there um i'll just uh recap it here it's uh relax accept and allow investigate and note um i found a lot of power um kind of just being brought back to me with the noting and just saying like hey you know like this is thinking or that's worrying or you know i'm just you know you know obsessing about something in my head right now and just kind of being able to actually just say what it is really just put like the ball back in my court rather than just, you know, playing defense against my thoughts. So, um, I really enjoyed, uh, that part of it. Um, and I just, you know, I'd like to, to ask you like, you know, when, when people first start trying out these techniques, um, and this stuff, like, you know, you know, you say, uh, you train your curiosity, um, what's kind of like the, the first, first kind of grab in there and like, you know, how, how does someone really get going on that?
2: Well, I think of curiosity as a superpower, and it's something, ironically, that we as kids you know, had in spades, and then it got beaten out of us as we became adults. So it's really just about reawakening that, you know, our internal three-year-olds. Uh, so I don't know why society decided that curiosity isn't cool, but I mean, if we could make, you know, curiosity, whatever that fat is, and then help people see how great it is, it would become that you know, eternal, it would never be a fat, it would just be like, oh, yeah, of course, that's the coolest thing, because it's so great. <laughs> <laughs> and so one way to awaken it, I would say is just to remember times when we've been curious in the past. And you know, I, I didn't even actually know that there were different types of curiosity. So I, I differentiate these two. You know, I went back and looked at the research because I'm not a curiosity researcher per se, but there are two different types of curiosity. So we can actually look to see what different types we are awakening at any moment. you know and so the b- briefly, you know there's this deprivation curiosity when we are deprived of information, there's this drive to go get that information. And then I think of that as like destination, you know, you got to get to the destination and then you're, you're, you're back up to baseline. Cause you feel okay. Now interest curiosity is the type of curiosity that I really think of as a superpower instead of the um, getting somewhere. It's about the joy of discovery. It's about the journey itself. And that's something we can be, we can awaken at any time. So we can just remember what's it like when <clears throat> we are just curious about something, you know, it could be simply truly being curious about someone else's point of view, which seems crazy these these times when everybody's so divided, but there was a time in ancient history when people were truly interested in having conversations and really understanding somebody somebody else's point of view. It feels so much better to instead of like, let me wait to get to say something and try to get my point across and fight with somebody. It feels so much better to be like, huh, what? Let me. Let me. I really want to understand your point of view, even if it's if, it, if it's like somebody's like you know, COVID was was from aliens on Mars, and they. I'm like, huh. <laughs> and so, if it's a patient in my office, I want to know where that came. I'm like, how do uh, you know? I don't think that was Breitbart, but you know, w- help me understand this. You know, like where would you? G-? And if I'm truly interested, as in compared to being like you're crazy, you know, let me increase your antipsychotic. It's a whole different ballgame because maybe they're not crazy, you know? So just that attitude, awakening that attitude of curiosity helps me just be, it energizes me. It helps me truly uh, be connected with somebody because I want to know where they're coming from. And it helps that just both of us, everybody feels better. So you're saying, you know, how can we do this? You, you mentioned one of my favorite mantras, you know, i I'm joking. I say this tongue-in-cheek, you know, because it's like, oh, you can use a mantra to meditate. Well, my favorite mantra is, hmm, you know, because that's like when we're truly curious about something, somebody's like, hey, you know, do you like that cake or that cake? I'm like, hmm you know, let me check in with myself and see. Well, that's awakening my natural capacity to be curious. So it's really something that we all have. And it's just a matter of awakening it and then seeing how great it feels to be curious. For example, it feels so much better to be curious than caught up in anxiety. So we can even use that curiosity when we're anxious, be like, oh, here's anxiety. And instead of thinking of this as big, bad concept that we have to get rid of, we'd be like, hmm, What does this actually feel like in my body? Is it tightness? Is tightness anxiety? No, it's just tightness. Is it that clenching? Is that burning? No, it's just that. It's just that. And we can start to see, oh, this is a concept that I'm afraid of because it feels bad. And my my caveman brain wants to get me out of here. And here, instead of like running away, I can turn toward it. You know, I love this phrase, the only way out is through. And so that curiosity helps us turn toward Unpleasant experiences, you know, and so that we that that's actually the only way we can move forward with anything that's uncomfortable.
1: I also um, loved the hmm as a punctuation, uh, a way to stop what was happening and just add that little punctuation to slow down for a second. And, you know, it also helped me understand something that I wasn't really getting in my meditation practice was. Okay, make a note of it. They would keep saying, "Make a note of what happens when you uh, drift." Uh, oh, I was thinking, I was planning, I was worrying, whatever. Um, the thing is, your this, the, your book gave me so much more of an understanding why that note, making that note, like the hmm, is we have to stop the habit loop. We, we're, it's spinning. You have to stop it or step away from it to be able to really really begin to understand what's happening. So that's been, that's been a very, a very very useful tool. And I found this, uh, this weekend, we, we celebrated our 20th, 20th anniversary from when we bought our house in the country. And instead of spending our, we walked around the property and instead of spending that time halfway in and halfway thinking about going to the market, making dinner, uh, preparing for this wedding I'm going to, blah, 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 I, I was just using the moment and I just identified like flowers on our property, and I was using my Google Lens. If you're going to use so uh, use these devices, learn instead of just clicking on social media like actually go to a Wikipedia page and actually learn what a uh, something is that's, you know, there's been things on my property for 20 years that I thought were killing me and they're beautiful herbs that people make tea out of and and heal you. I'm like, I was petrified of these things. So, you know, knowledge really is, really is power and, and not enjoying what you're doing. You quote a great, I love this, this line towards the end of the book, the end of the book gets for a, for a book by a scientist, it gets really just full of warm and beautiful feelings. I gotta say, you've got, um, you know, all you need is love the title of a chapter, which I absolutely love. Uh, But yeah, you quote musician, Randy Armstrong, worrying does not take away tomorrow's troubles. It takes away today's peace. And I was like, oh man, that is a serious, easy thing to remember. And it's completely true. So uh, late in that book, Um, you talk about love and once again, it's one of those phrases that it's so familiar to us. Uh, and sometimes it is overly familiar to us and we don't really realize its power. Loving kindness is you tell us a way that we kind of make peace with our past, let it go, learn from it and, and leave it, leave it behind and live more in the moment. And I'm just wondering, was that like a big moment in your life where, did the lights go off with like little stars and little hearts and you were like, Oh my God, love. Like, was it really a science breakthrough there?
2: It was a, well, when I first started doing loving kindness specifically, it was kind of a forced March. I kind of made a a deal with my meditation teacher where I was going to do it as a concentration practice only and no rainbows or unicorns or, you know, hearts or anything like that. She's, and she's like, okay, whatever. And it turned out, so I I did that for a while and totally face planted because that's really not how it works, but that's how I wanted to do it. And that's how I was going to do it. It turned out that when I was in residency training and I I was in uh, New Haven, Connecticut, and I would ride my uh, bike to the hospital and- You know, cars would honk at me for various reasons, some, um, you know, some (laughs) justified, some not so much in my mind. And so I would get, you know, maybe give them a universal sign of displeasure or, or, you know, ride in front of them or whatever as my way to get them, you know, like I pay my taxes, whatever, you know. And so I get to the hospital and I would be kind of all, you know, huffy and be like, oh, I can't believe that car. Not a great way to go, you know, go see patients be like, you know, oh, here's this sick patient. I'm like, oh, but this car cut me off. No, it's not about me, you know. So I was like, that's probably not so helpful and not so healing, you know. So I started practicing, you know, I, I played with this thing where if somebody honked at me, I would just offer myself a phrase of loving kindness, of, you know, like, oh, man, I'd be happy and, and offer them one, like genuinely, truly, truly, truly. Offer them a, a just a phrase of kindness, you know, just silently. And I would I got to the hospital, I was like, huh, that's much better. I feel much better. You know, so even that was the was more rewarding than getting to the hospital, you know, all huffy. And then I realized, wait a minute, I don't have to wait for somebody to honk at me. <laughs> I could just do this every car I see, but like offer, you know, some kindness. And I get to the hospital, and people are like, "Man, what are you smoking? I want some of that." You know, um, it doesn't show up in your urine drug tests. You know, co- totally clean. So there, you know, and it's free. You know, it's just it's just kindness. So I was starting to realize that it's really about tapping into this natural capacity that we all have of kindness. And and it's it could be a matter, I was using these phrases, that was the formal practice, you know, phrase of loving kindness. But really, it's a matter of touching into how it feels when we're kind to somebody, when somebody's kind to us. And then our brain's like, ooh, that's good, do it again. And then it just starts getting, oh, dare I say, becoming a habit.
1: Well, we we live in a society, unfortunately, where it's been kind of framed that kindness is a little bit of a sucker's game. And yeah, I love that you've provided some science. For how kindness actually is something that enriches enriches our life, makes us healthier, makes us more curious and receptive, and and I'm all and I'm all for that. Um, we want to give a, a little bit of time at, uh, towards the end of our show. We could talk for days, but we we know you've got other things to do, and Adam's got a, a new another another new kid in the house. Um, I just want to uh, give you an opportunity. If there's a, a couple of your apps, a couple of the things that you do where that could, people could use and reach out to you um and i just the last thing i want to just say is um i like at the end of the book that you give us the reminder that this is going to be little steps that that we're going to take little steps and if you just string together a little bit of time here and a little bit more time and a little time before you know it the bad that you cycle in the new habits the bad habits get less uh, uh, gripping and less uh, predominant, and I—that's a great and important message. That don't you don't have to solve. This is a lifelong process. You don't have to solve all of this by the next, you know, by next week. Otherwise, you failed. And I, I love that message. It made me feel so. I exhaled at the end of the book, like, ah, okay, now I'm now I could really just enjoy it.
2: Yeah, slow and steady really does win the race in the sense I, I think of, you know, any habit forms through short moments many times. You know, the more we tie our shoes, the better we get at tying our shoes. The more we practice kindness, the better we get at practicing kindness. It's not like we become some kindness guru the first time we're kind to somebody. That's not how our brains work. So, yeah, I'm glad you, you like that piece because it's really about what's realistic, what's real. And what's, you know, what's the science of our brains work? <laughs> you know, it's not magic, it's science or science is, you know, somebody gave me a t-shirt that says, you know, it uh, something, something to the effect of uh, science. <laughs> science is like magic, but better, you know, because it's real or something like that. Oh, so that. it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I would just say, you know, <laughs> and I, I really appreciate um all all that you've said about the book because that's really the the aim that was the intent of of writing it was to make it accessible to dare i say make it a little fun even to talk about something that's unpleasant as anxiety you know because life is pretty not fun if we don't (laughs) if we don't bring a little humor into our own experience and see you know this is just how my brain works uh so I'll just say, if folks are interested, certainly I wrote a book. It's called "The Unwinding Anxiety." Um, but also, we have a ton of free resources because I just love to try to to distill scientific concepts into everyday terms that people can understand that are not oversimplified but accessible. So we've put together you know a bunch of animations, um, a healthcare provider course for for healthcare providers, all all these things free on my website, uh, which is doc, DrJud, drjud.com. dot uh, and then we've got these apps that we've studied, you know, they're anybody can use um, the, uh, one, the unwinding anxiety app is also on there. These are all on my website or they have their own websites. Uh, we have a, the, our eating app that I mentioned, I think is uh, the website for that is go eat right The, the app's called eat right now. And then our smoking app is, uh, is, is uh, craving to quit. And I'm also, I'm on Twitter at Judd Brewer. I'm on Instagram at Dr. Period Judd. Um, so those are other, other ways that folks, uh, that we all can interact.
1: Wow.
0: That was fantastic. Yeah. Well, Dr. Judd, it has been a pleasure having you on here. Um, it's just super cool. We, we both love this book and, and, you know, like I said before, I loved your meditations, man, and I keep using them. So uh thank you for for giving us that and giving us all this information. Um it's it's truly great. And like you said, like everyone, if you if you read this book, uh you wish you would have read it 10 years ago because it's it's that powerful. This has been another episode of the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer Podcast. I'm Adam Glinski. I'm Albert Imperato, and I'm Judd Brewer. Thanks for listening.